0: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
1: Hello, Australia, and welcome to My Millennial Money. My name is Emily Wallace, and I am one of the co-hosts of My Millennial Property, taking over My Millennial Money. Today, I am joined by John Pigeon. Hello, Emily. Now we are ready to take over with some QA. Uh, I am so keen for today's episode. If you are a new listener to My Millennial Money, um, it is not usually my voice you hear. John actually does co-host My Millennial Money and My Millennial Property. Um, but together we co-host My Millennial Property. Glenn is taken a few weeks' break. That is usually who you would hear on the podcast. But we are here to run wild with some property QA.
2: Don't know why it needs a break. It's only February, so i no, not sure what's happening there. But in any case, I um, hope you're enjoying the break, Glenn. Now, we can't do this uh, without our show partner, TAL. That's T-A-L. If something goes wrong with your health, TAL's job is to make things simpler for you in any way that you can, like covering your kid's education, keeping up with your mortgage payments, or rehab to get you back on track sooner. Search TAL online or speak to your financial advisor today about how TAL can help you and your family. If you need an advisor, you can head over to sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help.
1: Awesome. Now let's get into today's show. So, John, uh, last night... I put the call out and the people have delivered, as they always do, on the My Millennial Money Facebook group. If you are a new listener and you have no idea what I'm talking about, literally just type in My Millennial Money into your little Facebook and up will pop the group that there are thousands upon thousands of members all across Australia. And it's usually where we ask people to submit their questions when we are doing a Q&A. But we've got plenty of questions, John, to get through. So I am very excited. The first question that we have, which has got 12 likes on it, so I feel like 12 other people also want this question answered. Emma Power asks, if you have a primary place of residence and want to buy an investment property to rent out, do you have to prove you can pay both mortgages with your salary or will the lender accept that rent will cover most of the investment mortgage? Great question, Emma. John, what do we think?
2: Look, it definitely leans towards the latter. Uh, they'll take into account the rent that's coming in, and that usually requires a rental appraisal from a, a real estate agent or similar. and And then they'll they'll run the numbers on that, and look at your servicing like they always do, income and expenses in your own life. Um, they may look at what your going to rent or or, uh, have demand a rental lease, um, depending on the bank and and how many questions they want to ask. But generally speaking, yes, they'll look at the income coming into your life, which is the rent going uh, now towards what was your principal place of residence.
1: Definitely. One note on that, I've actually been uh, through this myself very recently about getting the rental appraisal to help with the application for the loan. Uh, for your mortgage. Yep. Just keep in mind that some property managers will be more conservative than others because it actually does require a letter from a property manager to appraise the rental and tell you what it is. I actually got discrepancies of upwards of fifty dollars per week, which, you know, two hundred bucks a month is very different. So make sure you do get um, a few rental appraisals. It can't hurt to have a couple um also while you're shopping around for Absolutely. a good property manager. Good point. Okie dokie, next question. Ben Pep asks, what are your golden rules for a joint venture with a friend or a family member? Ben, this is a great question. And we recently recorded an episode with Peter Kelly, who is um, from Little Fish and he's a property developer or someone who helps manage property development. That's on the My Millennial Property um, Group. And he touched on this in terms of joint ventures, but it's certainly one that pops up a lot because A joint venture is a great way to get into an investment property sooner. Obviously, you've got money that you're pulling together between two or more people, but it can come with risks. Particularly, I think it can be risky to go with a friend, depending how long you've known the friend for. I feel like that's... (laughs) Like, are they a friend or are they like your best friend? Um, John, have you done any joint ventures yourself with, with family members or friends that mm. you could sort of Yeah, an Glenn experience? and I
2: headbutt on this all the time <laughs> is like don't do anything with friends or family and, and to be honest, all my joint ventures have been with friends and family. Um, yep. Now, obviously you've got to know your personality and also their personality uh, on a high level but I think – if we want to get into detail, you, you need to ensure that you've got a, a um, proper drawn up agreement by a solicitor that says uh, these, these are the terms and conditions of our relationship going forward for that joint venture. Um, so that is really critical um, to make sure that you're on the same page right from the start and there's no sort of um, grey areas you know, six months, 12 months into the into the joint venture, and you realise, oh, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't expect that to happen, or I didn't uh, think this was coming, or I haven't got the cash for this, or whatever it may be. So really, get on the same page, and make that a formal agreement, no matter how close you are. Um, the other thing I would, I would go back a step and say, well, why do I need a joint venture? Usually, it's because of a lack of cash or lack of servicing to the banks. So that that's a common reason. But if it's just uh, I want to go in with someone because I feel more comfort, the two of us going together versus just me on my own, then there may be some ways around that. So yeah, a joint venture is not for everyone, but it's I find it an awesome way to get into property for the maybe the first time or even um, just to get into an asset that you wouldn't be able to do on your own.
1: Most definitely. I think the, the biggest thing here is get your paperwork sorted, understand that, you know, it is a, a joint venture and that you need to understand the risks, the liabilities and what happens in the event that someone can't fulfil their part um, that, that they've gone forward for, you know, what happens if their financial situation changes and they can't come to the party. So definitely
2: yeah. and, and getting just, a lawyer just, involved. Yeah, sorry Emily, right. just on that, i Some lenders will, when servicing, they'll take into account 100% of the debt but only 50% of the asset for for one individual in that joint venture, whilst other banks will say no, we'll appreciate that you only have 50% of the uh, expenses but you own 50% of the asset. So you definitely want to be with a lender who's got the latter uh, because otherwise your servicing will be twisted for the next purchase. You, you, you It'll be out the window um, and you'll have to sell the development. Um, if, um, if you didn't intend to do that, then, again, that can derail your own situation uh, as well. But, uh, yeah, knowing what you can lend uh, well and truly bef- long before you go on commit to something is uh, is critical. Yeah,
1: most definitely. Uh, there's some great questions here. I'm just sort of sifting through. I actually think we'll get to all of them given we've got a whole episode to cover off on. Um, Cameron Press did ask, what is a fully serviced apartment and how do they affect your borrowing? That's a great question. And um, I think at a high level, let's unpack what a fully serviced apartment is because um, that in itself is a term that some people might not be across. So my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, John, uh, is that a fully serviced apartment is something similar to like what you'd see in like the Quest apartments, for example. So it's actually, people might privately own them, but um, a company like Quest effectively manages them to rent them out for short or long-term stays, or you could even live in them. A serviced apartment usually means that they... um, accommodate things such as uh, fresh towels and do the linen um, and there may even be a mini bar in some circumstances uh, for those sorts of things but they are serviced by a company that manages them maybe not as frequently as a hotel room you know for some People, it might be a seven day stay and it's serviced on day three and day five, uh, something like that. But a service department means that there are services um, that the managing company does provide, um, unlike just a standard rental where you take over the lease and you do what you want with the property. There's, there's no one coming around to change your bedding in a, in a standard rental, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. So, in terms of the second part of the question about how does it affect your borrowing? I am personally not across this. Do you have any insights, John? I I don't know if it does affect lending.
2: Yeah, look, we actually stayed in one um, in Queensland in January actually and uh, I was thinking about this as I was staying in it because um, it it does affect borrowing from the point of view that um, a lot of the service department's income is pooled and you take out the average of the The income that's received through the whole uh, building, not just your individual oh. room um so not all all of them, but definitely some of them are um, the the cost of having the the luxury of a service department and needs to be factored in as well so usually your your body corporates or your running costs are high because if you've got someone sitting on the desk twenty four seven um, that's that's uh, an income that needs to be factored into the running costs of the building. So that usually puts your costs up, which uh, again when you're looking at the numbers, reduces your your servicing because that's an expense to your individual property um, and the, the short-term nature of service departments as well. You, so you've got someone staying in it for one, two nights, three nights, seven nights. You haven't got that long-term rental agreement in place usually. So again, that plays around with your servicing because the banks see that as a lack of consistency in terms of the income. So yeah, definitely a lot of uh, things to take into account there. Um, Now, generally speaking, um, I've always uh, been under the impression that service departments don't generally go up in value as as much as as others, individual units or or definitely houses. And um, most of the time, that's the case. However, the one we were staying in, and again, this is why I was thinking about it because I was asking the the front desk um, just what the prices of some of these were and what they were say 10 years ago um, and and they'd actually gone up about 500,000 in that time um, oh my gosh. now again bit more boutique location wise and everything else so yeah just to do uh, do your research when you're you looking at a service department cuz it might look cheap um, but just look at the historical data of uh, of how it's been trending with growth
1: my brain's just ticking over thinking about you know other solutions too and in terms of the, um, short term accommodation space or, you know, not your typical investment property, that's just a 12 month lease. Airbnb does come into it. Um, and I guess maybe a key difference on an Airbnb that is like a freestanding property is when it comes to the lending, um, you're not having to rely on the other people in the block. Right. I didn't realize that was a factor. So even I've learned something from this question and I'm sure listeners have as well, but, um, Uh, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to do like a feasibility between a service department in, say, like a Quest um, versus having an Airbnb that you pay someone to service, like effectively like an Airbnb manager um, and what that sort of spits out at. Arguably, an Airbnb would come with a larger land component, which should theoretically help it grow um, a bit better than, say, an apartment in a large complex, but... um, yeah, maybe that's – maybe we could get a short-term rental specialist on our show at some point to to unpack that in a bit more detail. Yeah, absolutely. We'll note that one down. Now, moving on, uh, let's have a look here. And Renee has asked, is rent vesting with commercial property instead of residential a risky move? Ooh, I'd never thought about, I feel like when people hear the term rent vesting, they automatically assume it's only residential, right? Like you rent where you want to live and you invest where you can afford. Um, But having commercial instead of resi, that's an interesting take on the rent vesting term.
2: It is. And and I'm actually considering it myself um, right now because the, the office that I rent here on the central coast is literally 30 seconds drive from my house. Which yep. I love, appreciate yep. kids pick up and everything else, um, but it's it's part of a complex that's not currently for sale, and and okay. if it was, it would be a, an extreme amount of money. So, yep. looking at commercial property as a as a rent vester means that you can look far outside the immediate area that you need to run your business from is the, the first positive of that. Just like it is with uh, residential rent vesting, you've got a lot more choice, haven't you, around the country. So, mm. yeah, lo- looking at different forms of commercial real estate in which to purchase um, is is what's happening at the moment. In in my situation, having that flexibility is definitely a positive.
1: Definitely. One thing that I'm sort of thinking about here with um, – this case scenario is I'm assuming that what Ange is saying is that they're only looking to own commercial, like no residential, like straight into commercial is their first investment. I wouldn't say, and this is just from my experience of people that I talk to, that commercial investment straight off the bat is a common pathway. I feel like a lot of people like to enter the market with residential first, you know, build their sort of foundation and then maybe springboard into commercial. Uh, Also because, commercial tends to require a lot more upfront from you in terms of um, deposit and um, funds involved to actually acquire that property. So therefore, it may not be achievable for people straight off the bat. Um, but I really like that. And I probably never really thought about the fact that rent vesting isn't just limited to residential, like you can be a rent investor, renting where you want to live and owning commercial. So I don't necessarily think that it's overall a risky move, I think you need to, to be aware of um, the challenges you could face if that property doesn't get a tenant for a period of time. Obviously, uh, the upkeep of a commercial property, more generally speaking, is greater than a residential home.
2: Uh, upkeep as in maintenance, you mean?
1: Uh, maintenance, but also like the mortgage repayments on a commercial uh, sure. property. Okay. Yeah, cause yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Because if- I would actually say, like, because a lot of the time... We as a tenant in commercial space have to look after that and and we want to improve it, don't we, to make it nice and smick for our, our customers. But yeah, on a greater scale financially, much larger mortgage generally speaking, isn't it? So Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, high level I agree with you. I think the the concept of rent vesting is well I'm renting my home that I sleep in and where I'm investing in whether it be commercial or residential, income-producing asset, um, tax-deductible, all those things remain the same, don't they?
1: Definitely. Now, the next question is a really interesting one and one that I don't think anyone has ever asked of us before, so I'm keen to unpack this. Um, Brad Fong has asked, what tips and tricks uh, are there to help turn a negative gear investment into a positively geared investment? Brad's asking about, in particular, for an apartment But I think let's just establish some key terms here for those of you who are new to um, property investing and haven't necessarily been across the terms of positive versus negatively geared. So in terms of a property being negatively geared, it's effectively, and John, I remember you explained it once about like, treating it like a business about the money coming in and the money going out and effectively the bottom line at the end of the day, it costs you money to keep that property. You're actually putting money in and it yeah, comes out of the negative line. Yeah,
2: so you've got, you've got negative before tax, but could be positive after tax or negative before tax and negative after tax as well. So ideally you don't want the latter, do you? Which sounds as though maybe the case. Yeah. Um, so what you're purely relying on, for, for anyone that's half interested in property, will go on a spiel here in a minute, um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's basically saying, well, we need capital growth for this asset to be doing something for us. Because if it's not giving us income and it's not giving us capital growth, why have we got it? Um, yeah. So yeah, we need to assess that first and foremost. But then I suppose back to the question, improving the gearing of it so that we we're getting more cash flow. What sticks out to me is um, is just simply adding more bedrooms. Um, now, whether <laughs> how easy that can be done, I don't know. If it's a two bedroom unit and part of a complex, you've got no hope. Um, if can you Airbnb it, which gives you more. Uh, per night income than, than the normal long-term rental. So that may be an option. Can we put a granny flat in? Um, but that requires more cost in which to do so. So yeah, the short-term lease versus the long-term would probably be a, a low-cost option, I suppose, if, it's, if there's demand in your particular area
1: even just to revisit, you know, how much the tenant is paying, like have you done an annual rental increase or is, are you actually commanding market value for that property in the rental space or has it been sitting stagnant for a bit? Um, The other thing that springs to mind with apartments and obviously there's some limitations within this, but the body corporate fees are an expense, right? It's an outgoing that you have to have when you have an apartment block or a strata title. Uh, I often find that A lot of strata management or body corporate, there's not a huge amount of initiative involved. Like you kind of need someone to just push them and like really, you know, is our budget firm and could we be saving money or should we be increasing levies? Uh, I think maybe revisiting your body corporate fees and potentially the influence that you have over that to potentially reduce them, if it makes sense to do so, uh, could also help save a bit of money. But I think really the most obvious one is how can we get the rental return maximised? Um, and if it's an apartment where you can't add bedrooms, like John suggested, maybe Airbnb or short term, or just uh, understanding if you actually are commanding market value for that property, I think that's really, really important.
2: I don't know about you, Emily, but where when we're finding property for clients, the amount of under rented property is um, is unbelievable in terms of what they're actually charging. Like three fifty, it's renting for, but the appraisals are four twenty, four thirty. Like big money fifty, sixty, eighty dollars a week. That's uh, over time, huge amount of money. So yeah, assessing that is a is a really easy one, isn't
1: it? Yeah, most definitely. Now we do have plenty of other questions to get through. One that sort of sticks out to me that's had a fair bit of love on the Facebook group is from Amy Abella. And Amy asks, at what point can you start releasing equity from your uh, PPR to invest in an investment property? Do lenders still want you to be at less than 80% LVR? So that's loan to value ratio. And how do you go about getting your house value to figure out what equity is truly in it? Great question, Amy. And I do think there are quite a few listeners who have established themselves in their first property as their first home, their primary place of residence, and they are now thinking about, you know, where can I invest and how can I invest in a in a secondary property. Um, so I think the first step in this is understanding what usable equity you have in your property, uh, and step one of that process would be through your uh, mortgage broker to organise a valuation of your property so that the bank actually can come out, site your property. Sometimes they will do it via desktop, but majority of the time they'll come and actually inspect your property and give you a valuation of the property. Um, And of course, understanding the usable equity, and this is where the 80% does come into it. You've got to make sure that, well, first of all, you don't want your property to have gone down in value because that's that's not a good thing. Um, but you also want your property to be ready to be valued, i.e., you know, looking top-notch um, so that you can achieve a really good um, a good valuation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's do a high-level example, shall we? So yeah. if we've got a property that's worth $500,000, yep. uh, we times that by 80%, which equals 400000 minus our debt, and let's say our debt, for argument's sake, is 300000 So we've got $100,000 of usable equity. Now, mm-hmm. when we say usable equity, as you mentioned, Emily, that's what you can take uh, without paying lender's mortgage insurance and go and use it for whatever you want, buy a boat, buy a house, whatever else, Don't don't buy a boat, by the way. <laughs> if you want to pay lender's mortgage insurance, you can actually go higher. So you can say, well, I want to go in at 90%. Uh, So on that same calculation, 90% of 500 is your 450 minus your debt, 300 gives you 150 of equity that you can take out, provided that two things will occur. One, you've got the servicing, which is your income essentially to uh, cover that debt because it's an extra debt, it's just not free cash. So you've got to have reasonably high income in order to do that. And the second one is you're going to pay lender's mortgage insurance again, right? Now, there is, is the whole argument of cross-securitization, which is combining two properties together under the one lender, um, both tied to each other. So you may be able to swing around and, and avoid a little bit of LMI there if your LVR is high enough across the two properties, um, probably a subject for another day. But yeah, in essence, ideally, we like it at 80% or the banks do. But where there's a will, there's a way.
1: And I think the key here is having a broker on board who can really support you in going forward for your second property. um, You know, to be if it is around the investment um, path and understanding the equity. Also, um, one thing I have noticed when people do have their realised equity and they know what they can can have to put towards the purchase is, um, unless that's actually physically like cashed out. and and given to you um, to then go use as the deposit, you actually do need funds, right? Like you might be putting equity um, towards a purchase um, but if it's not in your bank account physically to be able to do a standard sort of ten percent deposit with a sales agent, don't forget that you can actually negotiate your upfront deposit. Like a lot of Australia, it's a standard ten percent uh, upon acceptance or signing of the contract once your offer's been accepted or you've won an auction. It doesn't have to be that. And I think if you can understand the rationale behind maybe it's only twenty thousand dollars as a fixed amount for your deposit, as long as the agent understands why, um, it's usually more than fine and it does say the rigmarole of you actually having to physically like cash out equity because that's a whole other step in the process um so just something to be aware of a little tip there now we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we have got plenty more of your questions to answer both from facebook and i did put a bit of an instagram call out last night as well and um i've been somewhat flooded so we'll be back in just a moment Okay, John, we are back. I am the holder of the questions today. That's why I'm reading them all out for those listening.
2: <laughs> and I've never seen them. So, uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: John's just on the fly just shooting yeah, from as the hip. per usual. <laughs> if you want to see more on the fly content, by the way, always feel free to check out My Millennial Property. Shameless plug for our show. Cause I know I mean, the main show covers so much, right? Like if you've been a long-term My Millennial Money listener, You will know the main show is so diverse, whereas the other sort of channels and there's so many different arms of My Millennial Mm. Money, um, they have a good focus. So anyway, back into it. Uh, I have a question here from Grace Hocking and Grace asks, at what stage should you engage a building and pest inspector? Good question, Grace. Um, There's sort of two situations, isn't there really, that I'm thinking of as to when it would vary. Uh, one being an auction campaign when it, when it's an unconditional um, sale and the other being an offer or a private sale, you know, somewhere okay. where it can be subject to conditions. Um, although, John, actually I'd be keen to get your feedback on this. What are your thoughts? Because when you put forward an offer on a property, you can put subject to building a pest, which many people do do. Yes. However, some buyers have said to me they would rather... Do the building and pest before putting in the offer, so they can account for any work that needs to be done and factor that into the price they're offering. What What are your thoughts mm. on that? Do you use? Yeah,
2: I'm not a massive fan of that one because you're outlaying funds that you don't really have any control over the outcome. Um, whereas private treaty, if you do submit your offer and it's subject to building and pest, once your offer's been received and accepted. Then you can get your building and pest, and you know that it's now in your control pretty much. I mean, you can get gazumped, but you, your offer's been accepted. Let's go and spend five, six hundred dollars to get a building and pest inspection done, and and then it's yours to lose or give away um, should the report not come back in your favour. Um, but yeah, I if you did it the other way, you may spend three or four. Uh, six hundred dollar amounts on on different properties. So that that's my only concern with that. But yeah, you mentioned at auction. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of auction properties have their building and pest done by the vendor. I'm okay with that, but yeah, I, I think if it was mine, I'd probably get another independent report done just for peace of mind and and have that done well before you stick your hand up at auction.
1: An interesting one about, um, you know, making an offer subject to the, don't assume that you can't negotiate after that. Like I've successfully negotiated deals after we've agreed on the price subject to building and pest and then there has been – because at that point, the vendor is committed to sell, right? Um, then there has actually been something that has been major enough that if we wanted to, we could withdraw from the contract. However, we've sort of said, look, we're happy to take on this major defect but we need to be compensated for it accordingly. Yep. Um, in both cases, we've had the purchase price amended – Um, And there is a difference, just a hot tip, if you do enter this situation, ideally, because they'll offer you two solutions. One would be to change the purchase price, but two would be to actually keep the purchase price the same, but factor the reduction into the adjustments and the disbursements at the um, transaction point in time. The best way to do it, I personally think, is to actually change the purchase price because your stamp duty is calculated off your purchase price. So, therefore, if your purchase price is amended, you're also saving some stamp duty as well along the way. So,
2: bit of gold right money. there. Um, bit it, of gold. I, I've had cases ago. where the vendors decide to fix a few of them themselves before settlement and okay. have agreed that way. So, yep. yeah. Um, but, yeah, approach with caution.
1: Yes. Now, um, someone from Instagram, I actually don't know their real name because it's like, you know, how Instagram names aren't necessarily first and last names. So, yes. somebody <laughs> who looks legitimate, um, are you up for a personal question, John? Of
2: uh, course. Of course.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Uh, no, this person just asked, um, would like some details on both of your property portfolios. When did you start and how many total properties do you both have? Which is an interesting question.
2: Yeah, it's um, very personal.
1: Very personal. Are we happy to share or we want to do high level?
2: Um, Oh, look, yeah, we can do a bit of both, I suppose. Yeah, look, um, you go first.
1: Okay. Uh, Mine's very straightforward. Yours is probably a bit more detailed than mine. You've been in the property game longer than me. Um, So, I bought my first property when I was 23 which is like, I don't know, two years ago or something. No. Um, <laughs> when I was 23, I bought my first. Uh, and then I, I've i still got that. Uh, and then when I was, uh, oh gosh, how old am I now? Okay, I'm 28 now. Um <laughs> You're still I,
2: 28. You've been 28. I'm still 28.
1: 28 yep. I've actually bought two properties in the last six months. So I bought one in well um, July and I bought another one in December, both of which are in Queensland and the original one is in uh, Melbourne's West. So I've got three properties, all have good tenants in them now. I'm very happy with them. Uh, and really, my strategy in the, my portfolio is accumulation phase. I'm just hoping to accumulate quite a few. Properties that have got a land component. They're all freestanding houses. They're all three or four bedrooms um, and with a good land component. So um, I'm sort of just getting good tenants. I've got some great cash flow and I'm just going to
2: let it grow. Awesome. That's a good wrap. Um, So I started, my first investment was 21. Uh, That was actually a joint venture. And Bought and sold probably 11, 12 properties over the journey. Um, at the moment, I'm holding five. No, sorry, four. I sold down a couple to buy my PPR. Principal place of residence, and I'm just on the lookout for another one now, so that'll that'll make five. But uh, Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, and Queensland are the areas that I've invested in. Majority houses. I have got one apartment, which is a bit of a spud, but it's um it's improving on the on the upwards trend at the minute. Um, so yeah. Cash flow, cash flow positive portfolio at the minute as well, and interesting one the whole cash flow positive bit because sometimes it's just time in the market to allow that cash flow to to build. So Mm -hmm. when I first started out at 21, I wanted a six percent gross yield average, um, but I knew that that wasn't going to happen straight away. So we we had a goal to build that to us by a certain date to have that six percent because I knew that was going to cover pretty much. all the running costs and more um, in, in my life at the current stage.
1: Awesome. Yeah, and I think it's good that, I mean, look, as I think Glenn always says, and I've heard you say it before, like, you get what you pay for, the, the, the podcast is free, and we, we you know, are actually in the property space, I think it's nice to know that we do own property because it's always good to hear from people who actually have been through the um, journey themselves, um, and obviously we both are buyers, agents, and we do help people to buy property, so we do know a little bit about what we're talking about, um, and it's good to know that there's, you know people answering your questions who actually are involved in the space. We're not just um, know, random yeah. people on the street.
2: I would say to that question, the, the number is a little bit irrelevant. I, I wouldn't yeah. hang my hat on trying to get 10 properties or five properties or whatever. It's definitely the quality of those. And, Uh, some of those in in my situation were developments. So you're almost buying two properties or three properties sometimes when you do a development. So, um, and and a lot of the time you're selling down on those. So there's some trading going on as as well as some long-term buy and hold. So it really comes back to your own individual strategy.
1: Like it's interesting, sometimes you do see these headlines like young investor owns 15 properties and that all sounds well and good. But yeah, each of those properties have running costs and it's not always a numbers game in terms of the volume. It's more about the quality um, and the overall value of the portfolio. Yeah. Okay, a bit of a change of pace for us now. Um, Again, this is another... um, another instagram name that I, I i don't know what their real name is so anyway anonymous instagram um, do interest rate rises really affect property investors if they sustain good capital growth and rental yield ooh good question there's also one that along a similar lines asking about the impact of rate rises so we're recording this episode in like early 2022, and there is speculation of of a rate rise at some point, and it has been a hot topic in the media. I think um, what we probably need to address first, out of all of this, is how much rate rises do impact the market or don't impact the market. Now, John, you've probably um, yourself owned property at a time where rate right, rates were higher. I've been fortunate to only own property when it's been like less than 4%. Mm. Um, so you could probably speak to this a bit more than me, but I think the biggest thing is when it comes down to it, those who are leveraged the max are going to feel it. Like that's probably the ones that are really going to suffer if a big rate rise did come.
2: Yeah, I think so. And it, it's understanding what your cash flow is right now or on the way in because, as you said, if you, if you increase the interest rates by a, a whole percent, across your portfolio that might be four or five properties and that can have um, a definite impact. So you've you've got to know that you're not right to the bone and you have got some cash flow buffers for your property portfolio as well as your personal life. Because generally what happens in my experience over time is that um, investors will uh, hold on to their own home and still live the lifestyle. And the first thing to go is an investment property, and oh, that investment property didn't didn't work because I had four years of no growth, and then I sold it. Well, you had to sell it because the interest rates rose, or there was some vacancy, or something like that. So, I think yeah, if interest rates do rise, uh, what does that do? Well, it um, it means that less uh, people will be buying property and more people will be renting. So usually what happens after growth as well is rents will rise because less people can get into that particular area. So rents increasing means better cash flow for the investors. So it's not one size fits all because it really depends on what type of asset you've got. Um, But when when I I suppose I speak individually to to clients, we're always looking at, well, what if you had to pay P&I across your whole portfolio? How would that look? Um, and if we added half a percent again, what would that look from a cash flow perspective? But when I first started investing, interest rates were seven percent and uh, for for someone that 's in their twenties now, seven percent never been heard of so um that was just the norm to us at the at that time and we were holding investment properties okay so i think yeah i don't expect it to go to 7 anytime soon but know that the the normal interest rate over the journey's been anywhere from 5 to 7
1: yeah definitely uh, look, final question to close out our takeover episode today. And thanks for letting us take over, by the way. I know Glenn's mm-hmm. on holiday, but we, we appreciate being able to to speak to people and, and I guess answer your questions that you've um, had come through for the main show. So thank you for having us in your ears today. Uh, so the final question is from... Um, Nadia Clifton. And Nadia asks, we've just bought our first investment property. How do we choose the best agent to lease with? And this is an interesting one because particularly if you've bought in an area that you don't necessarily have contacts in, which for many investors is the case, um, they're buying in unfamiliar territory. Like how do you assess these things? And I think going for the lowest property management fee is not the way to pick the best rental agent. Like it's no. just a race to the bottom, isn't it?
2: Yeah, generally speaking, that. it is. Yeah, absolutely. And and we always say uh, a, a bad tenant is due to a bad property manager, due to a bad choice by the landlord. Um, yep. So, I think asking the right questions of the property manager, um, such as how many properties do you manage, how long you've been doing it, um, who's who's doing the inspections, like if you've, uh, h- how long have your staff been working. For your firm, like um, so and, and age uh, we, we don 't want to discriminate, but if you 've got a, an 18 year old that 's um, first week in the job inspecting your property they 're not going to have the level of experience that someone that 's older that 's been doing it for twenty years is just common fact, right so mm. understanding the dynamics of the management group is really important. Uh, Rate My Agent is a good website to jump onto and yeah. that's for real estate agents but but it's also for property management. So you can check there to see what the public um, have to say about that in in your local postcode area that you've bought into. So a couple of um, starting points there but as you mentioned, Emily, great point. The percentage that they're charging, not always a reflection of the standard. Um, I don't think you want to pay overs, but you don't definitely want to get the the cheapest bargain because that might reflect in the performance.
1: Totally. Another um, hot tip, if it's an area that you don't currently reside in or don't really have contacts in, is just hit up the local Facebook page. So usually communities do have a Facebook page for like the suburb or the city council um, region. Um, And I just ask, like I'd go from from a tenant angle to say like, hey, if you're renting in the area as a tenant, um, who have you rated highly as a property manager who's looking after you? Because I actually think that is a really good indicator um, as opposed to someone raving about, you know, a landlord raving about their property manager. I think the other way around is actually really more telling. So maybe that's a way you could um, get gain some experience because you will also find out who definitely, like who's been treated badly. Yes. <laughs> so you'll know who to avoid. Um, yeah. People are always happy to tell you that, but you'll also find out who's good.
2: Yeah, and and, and don't assume that just because there are, a good real estate agent firm that they're a good property management company either. So mm. take that into account. Sometimes when you're buying a property and it's already got a tenant in there, then it is easier to leave it with the existing management firm. But yes, yeah, just for ease of changeover and access keys, et cetera. But um, you can, there's no reason why you can't move them on either after the the lease has expired.
1: Yes, most definitely. Well, that brings us to a close today. It's been fun. I like the diversity of Q&A because I think you get a little bit of everything across the board. Property is such a diverse topic in itself. And I also think for our listeners, you're all probably at very different stages of um, being familiar with property, whether you're um, rent vesting, whether you're thinking about investing or thinking of buying your first home. Um, So hopefully today has been valuable for you. If you want some more regular property content, you can always jump on to um, listen to our show, which I think gets released on Wednesdays. Is that right, John?
2: I believe so. That's what they told yeah. me. Um, yeah. But I think they'd appreciate the female voice, Emily, as a, as a host <laughs> today. They don't get a lot of that. Um, definitely Glenn yeah. and I can't provide that for them. So, yeah, I think that would be a, a standout for them at this stage.
1: There you go, a bit of a different voice in your ear. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you are a new listener and this is the first episode you've ever listened to of My Millennial Money, um, thank you for jumping on. Please join the Facebook group. You'll find there's so much value in that group of people sharing their situations and um, sharing their stories, but also asking some great questions. Uh, And if you've been a long-term listener and you haven't yet given the show a rating on the podcast app, wherever you listen, uh, now might be a good time to go and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Do that. Do that, John says. Do that. <laughs> One aye or aye, five. Captain. One or a
2: five. Don't sit in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, a <at> five. <laughs> it's been a pleasure.
1: Yes, likewise. We'll speak soon.
2: Bye.
3: I run a money podcast and a lot of people are like, wow, you must know so much about the markets, investing and all that stuff. Well, the truth is I have some secret source. Every day I use the Australian Financial Review app as part of my subscription and it just keeps my finger on the pulse with what's happening around the world in Australia in relation to companies, politics, all the stuff. So you can also be like me. Well, you probably don't want to be like me, However, you can also get access to all the stuff that I use to prepare podcasts and keep my finger on the pulse. So if this type of analysis and information is something that you want to plug into your life, you might be thinking, what can I do? Well, you can invest in your success with a subscription to the financial review. Subscribe during the end of financial year sale to save 50% or more for your first three months. Visit afr.com forward slash subscribe. That's afr.com forward slash subscribe. The offer ends on 30th of June. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. ching Shopify is the global commerce platform
0: that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage,